as of midnight. So I just wanted to make sure you're in good health and all that good stuff. And just on behalf of the church, we'd like to sing you happy birthday. Please help me out because you definitely don't want me singing this all by myself. So happy. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. Thank you very much. I did, I did bring my trash can. If you were here last week, in case somebody takes a call while I'm preaching and doesn't get off the phone. If you don't know why that's funny, you should have been here last week. And you can listen to the podcast to figure that out. So, all right, all right. Hey, I got, I got a couple of things I want to do before I get into it. And thank you for that, too. And you guys sounded terrible, but I probably shouldn't have said that. So I can't sing either. So now I know I'm not the only one. So I, it's all right. It's all right. The, years ago, right, this, this wasn't part of my notes, but years ago when I was a, a first made of devotion to Christ, one of the first things I did, which we talked to you about doing, is get involved some, somehow, some capacity. And so I got involved in being a youth leader at the church that I was attending at the time, and we were doing a video scavenger hunt. If you've ever done a video scavenger hunt, we have a list, and you have to go around with a video camera and film different things, like your whole team in a police car, stuff like that. And, uh, and so at one, we had to sing Amazing Grace. I don't remember what the setting was. It was like at the mall or something like that. And so I'm, I'm the, 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 the videographer, right? But I'm singing along, and so I'm not thinking, you know, that I can't sing, but I can't. So I'm just singing and filming and laughing. So when you come back, all the teams come back, and you watch the videotapes, right? And so ours goes in, and then all of a sudden, the only person you can hear singing is, is me, right? And everybody's like, good Lord, who is that on the camera? And I'm like, slinking out of the room. So yeah, so I'm just saying that's what you sounded like tonight. All right, so, so all right, a couple, couple of quick things. One is, see, it's reciprocity, right? I got something for my birthday. It's Abby's birthday today. So it's a Chris House CD, and if you want more information about that, which you can buy, let me know. And then there's also a Starbucks gift card. But she turned 20, right? She's, she's dropped the teen out of her world. It's gone forever, Abby. It's, gone, it's only downhill from here. It's only downhill from here. So, All right, so a couple of things. It's a couple of things I'm supposed to do before I get into the message. One is we want to talk a little bit about faith promise. Uh, there's cards available for you. If you call this your church home, you need to get one of those cards. They're out there in the, in the lobby area, I believe. If not, then you can see Jenna after the service. But you need to get one of those cards. If you call this your church home, we expect you to get one of those cards and begin to pray and ask God for a number. It's called faith promise because we're believing that in this conversation that you have with God, he's going to give you a dollar figure. You're going to believe by faith. You don't know where that money's going to come from, but you believe by faith that he's going to provide it. It's called faith promise because you make a promise now that when he does provide it, you'll give it then to the Faith Promise Initiative. And we're going to use those monies to fund missions endeavors. We're going to use that to advance the vision of the church. It could be to plant new campuses, expand staff. Uh, but if first and foremost, it's going to go to fund our missions overseas and over here. And so we're excited about giving you an update. It's, I already got an email. I already got an email today saying that somebody's turning in their faith promise that God's already provided. They hadn't even turned the card in yet. They had filled it out, hadn't turned it in, and God had already provided the money. So 
two years ago, two years ago, when we did, I think it was our last Faith Promise initiative that we had done together as a church, we were praying, and, uh, and the number I felt like I was supposed to put on there was $1,000, and so I was getting ready to fill out the card, which was a lot, of, it's a lot of money for us. It still is a lot of money for us. And I felt, before I wrote it in, I felt like God said to me, is that all that you have faith for, right? And I was like, yeah, it's, that's, that's what I got, right? It's, it's, it's $1,000. And I felt like God said, really, that's all that you have faith for. Do you think you might have faith for $5,000? I was like, what do I have to lose, right? You don't put your name on it. It's not a pledge drive. Nobody follows up with you, right? Not even me as the lead pastor of the church. Nobody knows, right? So, but this is the idea. And so I felt like God asked me specifically, do you have faith for $5,000? All right. So I've, we filled it out. I talked to Vanessa about it. And what I felt like God challenged me, we we're like, let's do it, right? Week, week, just a matter of weeks later, our, our, our home that was short selling because it was built with Chinese drywall, which is, you, many of you know that story, which the bank said would never happen, it, sh- it closed. And at the, at the closing, we're short selling, right? We're short selling. At the closing, we got a check for $4,000 at our closing, at our closing. We could not give that check to the Faith Promise Initiative fast enough. We deposited, wrote a check to the church. If you were here, we told that story that night. Now, you might say, well, Fred, your faith promise was for $5,000. And this is what I want to say to you tonight. And then this is the lesson that I learned two years ago. I would rather believe big not miss, and, and miss my goal, miss my goal and give more than believe small and meet my goal and give less. Let me say, I would rather believe, believe big, miss my goal and give more than believe small Meet my goal and give less. When we gave that check, it was more than we have ever given in faith promise in all of our lives. Are you with me? Does that make sense? That's the beauty of faith promise. So we're saying, have a conversation with God. Believe big. Believe big. And God is going to make a way and he's going to do something great. And you're going to have a story just like we have a story to tell. And we can't wait. And we're going to be working those into our series uh, throughout the year too. So, And one of the reasons why it's important to us, uh, uh, Juice, uh, David talked about uh, Heart for Orphans. Another group that we support is Food for the Hungry. And so there's a table out there. All, many of us have child sponsorships. If you were here when we did that drive, uh, I guess it was about a year or so ago. This is the, the young man that we support. I think it's like $32 a month. And he's on our refrigerator. And when we see that on the fridge, it prompts me to pray for him. But Food for the Hungry, there's a village there that we've adopted uh, in the Dominican Republic. We're hoping to do a missions trip to the Dominican Republic, to that particular village. We're working out those details now, and as it comes in, we're going to let you know, but we're hoping to be able to do that in the fall. But if you are part of this church and you don't sponsor one of these children, we want you to go out to the table and get some information on that. If you've sponsored a child and you might have written a check for the whole year, some people did that, and yours is lapsed, it's time to pick up your another one, right? This is part. We And this happened last uh, couple, a year or so ago when we did it. You might not be able to do one by yourself. Pull a couple of people in and three of you chip in together and support that child and go in on it as as a team effort and so they are providing for us to help us with this drive to relaunch our child sponsorship there's a concert that's coming to the Hampton Coliseum uh, at the end of this month it's third day Switchfoot, Brandon Heath it, lots of other people, right? It, it's, it's one of those concerts where it's lots of bands that are performing, and they're giving us two free VIP tickets, which I think will involve a meet and greet, some backstage access, and so we're going to do a drawing uh, probably next, next week, probably, between both campuses, so if you... Uh, make a commitment to sponsor a child, renew your commitment, or you've already renewed your commitment like we have, then you can still fill it out and put it in the dish, and then we're going to do that giveaway. So, all right, we good? All right, all right.
So we are in a series, we're going to get that first slide is going to pop up there for me. We're, we're in a series called The Kingdom, and, and we're working out of Matthew 13 together. Now there are a series of parables that you find in Matthew 13 where Jesus says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like, and then there's a fill in the blank that you could write, and then we're going to be dropping in a different word uh, each week. Last week we talked about a kingdom of consequence. That's right. And we talked about the reality of hell. Pastor Jamie did a, a message in uh, uh, Williamsburg on uh, kingdom of consequence. Amazing sermon. We're doing this series together. Sometimes it'll be more similar. He took a different approach. That's one of the great things. We talked about that in the series and a couple of things that he shared. I just want to lay some of these quotes on you tonight. One he said is when Jesus reveals his intentions, it divides our affections. Come on, that's good, isn't it? When Jesus reveals his intentions, it divides our affections. Another thing that he shared, which is really a setup for me coming in this weekend, a kingdom of authority. He said, Jesus didn't come as a motivational speaker. He came as the king to conquer and to claim what is rightfully his, rightfully his. And so th th if you've never been to Williamsburg, come on, this is your series to do some double dipping, right? Come on, on Saturday and then come again on, on, on Sunday morning. Even if it's going to be the same message, you're going to get something fresh and something new. So we want to invite you to come and celebrate with us what's happening there in Williamsburg at that campus that's growing. All right, so Matthew 13, 1 through 9. Matthew 13, 1 through 9. This is going to be our text that we're going to launch into tonight. And again, we're going to be talking about a kingdom of authority. It says, later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake, and a large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Boating is godly. Then, then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore, and he told them many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. He says, listen. Now, that's a key word for us, and we're going to talk about a key phrase that comes in a minute that I believe helps us to understand the principle that's being taught to us through this famous parable that many of you have heard before. Listen. My Bible has an explanation point. It belongs there. I hope yours does too. A farmer went out to plant some seeds as he scattered them across his field. That's the other key phrase that helps us understand understand what this parable is about his field some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock the seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun and since they didn't have deep roots they died other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants still other seeds fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Father, as we dive into your sacred word tonight, we pray, Father, that you would plant something deep inside of us. As we're going to see together tonight, God, we know that this seed is your word. It's your truth that comes from your heart. And we want our hearts to be full of the seed that comes from heaven and that our lives would bear much fruit for your glory and for your namesake. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said together, amen. See, some people are visiting or going, that's the shortest sermon I've ever heard. He's read it and he's prayed already, right? Okay, sorry to disappoint you. All right, here we go. There are a total of 45 verses in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that speak 
to the authority of Jesus. In the King James Version, which if you're reading that translation, it often translates the Greek word E-X-O-U-S-I-A into the word power, but authority is the better rendering. In fact, if you slot power in there like the King James does, I think that you miss some of what the Bible's trying to teach us about Jesus. That's why we encourage you, if you're studying the Bible for a little bit more depth, you should read out of multiple translations. If there were going to be three that you're going to pick, maybe this is new for you, I would recommend the New Living Translation, the Amplified, and the New American Standard. Reading those three together is going to help you have a deeper understanding. It's going to give you different renderings, and you can put it all together and get a better picture. But there, there's 45. Now, we're not going to go through all 45. I'm going to show you 11. I think it's 11 tonight. We're not going to read all 11. I'm just going to read a few of them. But if you're a note taker, I want to be able to put them on the screen for you. And, uh, and also, we always get the outlines online uh, as we work our way through the series. So the authority of Jesus, let's talk about that. Because I believe that this is the principle, the theme of the parable of the sower and the seed. And where I get that from is how he starts his teaching with a command, and then this phrase, his field. And by focusing on the, those words, I feel like it gives us a context to understand what Jesus is trying to teach us about the kingdom of heaven, that it is a kingdom of authority. The authority of Jesus. All right, Matthew 7, 29. We, I love how Matthew starts out. It's the first verse in the New Testament that speaks directly to the authority of Jesus. And I love that it starts with talking about his right to define truth. Matthew, here it is. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers, the teachers of religious law. I started in verse 28. I want to give a little bit more context there for you. Now, now the reason why they were surprised, it's twofold. One is because he taught with, as one who had been given authority, but there was no rabbi who had commissioned him. And in Jesus' day, a rabbi couldn't be a rabbi until someone who was already a rabbi would choose you as a child and you would grow up under their teaching. Every rabbi had a different interpretation of the Mosaic law. It was called their yoke. That's why Jesus talks about his yoke being easy, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, that's another sermon for another time, but that's the, the principle that's being taught here. Your yoke is your, is your teaching. Your yoke is your interpretation, Jesus didn't have a rabbi who had ordained him, right? Because the rabbi who had ordained him, the creator of the universe. And so they were a little put off by that because they were saying, hey, you don't have the right to teach with authority because no one has commissioned you to be a rabbi in, their, in our culture and we don't like that about you. Now, that's a, a common one that I think many people are familiar with. I think the other reason why that they were put off by the authority with which Jesus taught is because he taught with an absolute authority. See, there were lots of rabbis with lots of, of, of interpretations of the Mosaic Law, and they were careful not to teach what they believed in a way that made anybody else feel wrong, because they knew, just like when we teach, we're careful about some things, that there's verses that can have multiple interpretations. We say this is what we believe as a church, but we know different churches believe other things, and we want to respect each other, and so they did that in their day. But when Jesus came along, when you read in his teachings, he teaches in a way that says, if you don't like what I say, then you can choose to be wrong, but that's on you, right? When you read Jesus' teaching, right, he does not leave room for anybody else to be right. He, and he's allowed to do that because he's divine, because he's perfect, because he's the son of the living God, because he's Jesus. And they didn't like that. 
because they knew that when their teachings didn't line up with his teachings, that Jesus was saying to them, you're wrong unless you choose to submit to the yoke of truth that I'm putting into the world. He's a person of authority. He had authority to heal. He had authority to forgive sins. And he had the authority to commission others, as did any rabbi. All right, let's look at, a, at, at four more. He had authority to speak for God. He had authority to cast out demons. He had authority to judge. And in John 10, 18, this is a big one, he had authority to die. Nobody else has authority to take their own life, to lay down their own life. This is a big one. This sets Jesus apart. He had the authority to choose when it was time for his life to come to an end. This is why we believe that, that suicide is, is a sin. It's because it infringes upon the sacredness of the sovereignty of God. That's why murder is an egregious sin, because it infringes upon the sacredness of the sovereignty of God. It's one of the reasons as a church that, that it's a loving stand, but it is a firm stand against abortion because it infringes upon the sacredness of the sovereignty of God. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one to say that he has a right to choose when someone's life comes to an end. For the rest of us, we are submitted to the timing of the sovereignty of the creator of the universe it's a kingdom of authority and right, let me give you these last three he had the authority to raise himself from the dead come on and i love these last two he has authority over everything and over everyone this is john 13 3 i don't know if that's the right right verse or not i'm going to read you the verse it says jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. I'm not sure Mark 9, 43 is the right one there. All right, John 17, 2. I'm not sure that one's right either. I don't know what happened to my slides there. All right, John 17. It should be John 13, 3 and John 72. All right, this is, this is John 72. For you have given him authority over everyone. So the other one talked about everything. This one says everyone. He gives eternal life to each one that you have given to him. So Jesus, and, and wrapping up here in the gospel of John, he's just trying to make it clear. If you're curious about what kind of authority that I walk with and teach with and have, I have authority over everyone and everything. It is an authority that is absolute. He does not negotiate his authority. There's nothing about him that is deferring. There is nothing about him except in his relationship to the Father that is submissive. That he is the king and he stepped into this world and he says to you and to me, I am supposed to be the ultimate authority over your life. And anything that's in your life and a part of your life that doesn't line up with who I am and what I teach, I am expecting you to submit and to defer to me because I am supposed to be the king of your existence. It's a kingdom of authority. Until I become fully submitted to Jesus' right. Come on, right is an important word here. His right to absolutely rule every aspect of my life I will never accomplish all that God has destined for me. I think that's the ultimate truth of the parable of the seed. And we're gonna, we're, you're going to see that. We're going to work through that parable tonight. Until I become fully submitted to Jesus' right to absolutely rule every aspect of my life, I will never accomplish all that God has destined for me. All right, so how many of you have ever heard somebody say this to you before? Okay, maybe it wasn't sir, but it was man. Right? Anybody? I, I've heard this. How many people have heard this before? Come on. 
do not lie in church, right? How many have heard this more than once in your life? See, so this is what's interesting, right? Either all the people that raised their hand the second time thought I said the first time, how many of you have only heard this one time, or conviction set in because there were a lot more hands went up on the second time around, right? So how many people have heard this so many times you're embarrassed to raise your hand right now, but you're going to do it anyways? Nice. Come on. That's right. We believe in vulnerability and authenticity here at the City Life Church. So I, I, I haven't heard this a lot in my life, but I've, I've heard it a few times. But I remember one time distinctly when I heard it. It was March. It was, it was golly, it had to be 13 years or so ago. It was before we had kids, and Vanessa and I were married. We were living in the inner city of Richmond, and I think it was for her dad's birthday and, uh, at Christian Life Center, and uh, at where he was the lead pastor. He's the founding pastor. That's now shifted to his daughter and son-in-law, Tanya and Christoph Fehrenbach. We're big fans of them and the church there. That church planted this church. Come on, it's a great story. Uh, and so, so the, the guys in that church, they were, they were conniving like many of you are, and they had come up with a plan that early in the morning they were going to call Pastor Tom and tell him the church was on fire and that he needed to come right away, right? These are great friends. You want to have friends like that, right? And so his wife was involved in it, my mother-in-law, Gail, and so she had packed a bag for him. And we were all meeting there, and we call it the butt crack of dawn and, uh, when no one should be awake. And, and so we were all going to go to North Carolina for a big day of golf because he's a big golfer, if you know Pastor Tom. And so we all met there. He comes. He comes rushing in, you know, thinking the church is on fire. We're all there. Surprise, right? And I'm sure he said a few choice words. And then finally he got on board with the plan. And so we all hopped in the car and we drove to North Carolina. And, and as we were driving, we were in North Carolina. We were down close to our destination there. And I had to go to the bathroom. There was not a trash can in the car. And so I had to pull over to find a place to, to go to the bathroom. And so I was important to me. I wanted to catch up to the group, right? If you're caravan, you know you want to catch up to the group. And I was trying to catch up to the group. And then I saw the blue lights flashing back in the distance. And so eventually, right, he, I pull over and, and, uh, and he comes to the car and he says, sir, could I see your license? So then he says, could you please step out of the car? So the next thing I know, I'm against the car. I'm being frisked and I'm being handcuffed. And the guys that I'm with jump out of the car. He reaches for his gun, right? I'm thinking, we're just here to play golf, right? We're just here to play golf. And so I'm thinking maybe somebody that's right, identity theft or right, that I'm getting confused with somebody else. But what I came to learn, which many of you should know, that if you're driving a certain number of miles over the speed limit in North Carolina, which I'm not going to say in, uh, out of the Fifth Amendment tonight, not to incriminate myself, but, but they have the right to arrest you on the spot because people just choose to not come back to the state. And they say, well, I'm just never going to vacation there. So they arrest you. They, they take you before a magistrate, right? They process you. And then you're motivated to come back to deal with that speeding ticket. So my, these guys in the car who happen to, right, they're thinking, God Almighty, how did we end up in Fred's car, right? They have to go to an ATM machine, post bail for me to get me out of jail. By the time we get to the golf course, it was March. It had started snowing in North Carolina. The golf course was closed. We all drove back to Williamsburg. Yep. We played a round of golf, and then I came out to the car and realized I locked my keys in the car, and I said to come all the way for Richmond to get me. Right? It, was a, it, was a, it was probably one of my worst days. Why am I telling you that story? Right? Because I'm still working through it. That's why. So. <laughs> I'm telling you because when I was sitting in that state police cruiser with my hands behind my back, handcuffed, there was a feeling that I had. And that feeling was I am under the complete and total authority of this man. I am totally in this moment, especially because he has a sidearm, right? In this moment, I am totally submitted to him. Whatever he tells me to do, 
wherever he tells me to go, there is nothing inside of me that wants to, I'm completely and totally under his authority. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you, maybe you've had that experience before, and maybe it's under, under similar or different circumstances. But I know all of you here, even if you've never been arrested, you can appreciate that feeling that I'm describing to you. That is the feeling our humanity should have every day of our lives. That's the feeling that my humanity and your humanity should have every day of our lives in relation to Jesus. I will go where you tell me to go. I will do what you tell me to do. I want your authority over my life to be absolute, and I want in here in me to be fully and totally committed and submitted to you all the days of my life. All right, you ready for the seed parable? Let's, let's, let's read through. The, we're going to Matthew 13. Is Jordan, where's, is Jordan in here or is he in the tech booth? He's right here. All right, Jordan's going to come help me because he's doing a leadership thing, and I didn't tell him if he was going to do this, so this is his Starbucks gift card for being bold. So he, he and many of the other youth are walking through a leadership track with Pastor Justin. They've been preaching, right, uh, at RC services, and, uh, and some of them are about ready to graduate, and so we're going to recognize them uh, and coming up soon, but I thought it would be good. We're going to have him read the text to us. You want to do that? All right, all right. So he's going to start reading in verse... 18 to 23. Just start reading verse 18 to 23. Nice. Right here, and then go to right there. Big text. Now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seeds that fall on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil ones come and snatches away the seeds that was planted in their hearts. The seeds on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have the deep roots, they won't last long. They, they fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fall, fell among the, the thorns represented those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. Nice. Come on, can you give it up for Jordan? Very good, man. Matthew 13. 18 through 23, we have Jesus giving us an explanation of the meaning of the parable that he opened up this great discourse on the kingdom of heaven. And in the parable, if you've been reading along with us, there are four different places that Jesus identifies. The place of the footpath, the place of the shallow soil, the place of among thorns, and the place of the fertile ground. Now all of these, as we just heard from that explanation, represent our hearts. It represents the heart of people. And, and this is what I want us to grasp here. All four of these were a part of his field. All, all four of these were a part of the farmer field, farmer's field that represents Jesus. That's important for us because it tells us that he has authority over these fields. It tells us that they belong to him. That he can do with those fields what he wants. But what's interesting is Jesus is saying, just because I have authority over these fields, just because these fields are within my domain, there is something the field has to do to receive from me. 
You can be a part of my field, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to receive from what I want to give to you, and it doesn't mean what's going to come out of you is what I've destined for you. There's something that I do because of my authority over you, but there's something that you've got to do to produce fruit from your life. The footpath, the shallow soil, the among thorns, and the fertile ground. Now, some of us, one of these, they characterize who we are. We're going to talk a little bit about that as we work through. But I think if we're honest, all of us can say, we move in and out of these all the time. Right? The, the question is, which one characterizes you? None of us are ever going to be perfect. None of us are ever going to get there. All of us want to be the fertile ground. We want that to characterize us. But all of us have among thorns moments. All of us have shallow soil moments. All of us have footpath moments. All right, so we're going to work through each one. The footpath. This is what I believe is, uh, the footpath is about. This is the person who is completely and totally opposed to Jesus. And anything for which he stands, it's about complete rejection. I think sometimes we, we make the, the devil the enemy because it talks about Satan coming and stealing the seed, but he wouldn't be able to steal the seed if the soil was different. It's interesting you don't hear anything about Satan in the rest of the part of the parable, right? He's a thief for taking it. But Jesus says we don't have to be a victim to him if we'll cultivate the soil of our heart and make it impossible for him to come and snatch away what Jesus is planting. Ezekiel eleven nineteen and Ezekiel 36, 26 are, 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 are all about the, this, this great idea that you find in Ezekiel where it talks about that there's going to come a day where God takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. He takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. Now, I think that's speaking to the moment that Jesus was going to one day come and die for the sins of the world. And when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, that our, our heart of stone gets taken out and a heart of flesh comes back in. But still, even though that happens to us, which is all about grace and it's supernatural and it's something that only God can do, that we bear the responsibility now to make sure that heart stays soft because there's moments where it hardens. It happens in my life and I know what happens in yours. Mark 10, 3 through 5. Mark 10, 3 through 5. Jesus answered them with a question, what did Moses say in the law about divorce? I'm not talking about divorce tonight, but I want to get to a lesson that he teaches us through this discourse. Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said, a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. Now listen to what Jesus says here. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard heart. I'm sharing that verse with you tonight because some of us, we're walking in the concessions of Christ instead of walking in the favor of Christ. For, for some of us, because of the hardness of our heart, he doesn't kick us out of the family. He doesn't make us leave the field of the fold, so to speak. But because of the hardness of our heart, we're settling for his concessions when he wants us to know his favor. We're settling for his less when he wants us to walk in his more. We're settling for mediocrity when he wants us to experience the depth and the abundance of John 10.10, his promise that he speaks over all of us. Don't let your heart get hard. He talks about the shallow. The shallow, this is the person who is superficially engaged but unwilling to do the heavy lifting of discipleship. I'm not going to talk about the 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24 tonight, but if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you know that those four numbers represent our philosophy and our strategy and our approach to discipleship. We, we like this phrase here, Jesus is going to make your soul sweat. 
1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, which is, we're, we're switching the one used to us for B. John 10.10, 10, we're, we're in the process of switching it over to 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's the great invitation that he gives to all of us to begin this journey of discipleship. Mark 10, 24 through 27 is the famous text about the rich young ruler. But when we get to Luke 9, 62, let me read this one to you. Luke 9, 62, it says, But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Don't you find it interesting that every metaphor that Jesus gives us about discipleship is labor intensive? You ever notice that? Every single parable that Jesus gives us about discipleship is labor intensive. I think that there's a lot of confusion about what grace is in the world today and in the church today. I think people misunderstand grace to be something that's easy. There's no verse in the Bible that tells us that grace is easy. What the Bible tells us about grace is that it makes things possible. And there's a difference between possible and easy. There's a difference between possible and easy. Even when Jesus, which I referenced, where he said my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it's a play on words. And we've taught on this many times before. Because the word that he uses for burden there is the same word for a ship's cargo. And if you know anything about ships, you know that there's nothing light about them. What makes it light is that the ship was designed to bear the weight of the burden that's given to them. So even when Jesus says my yoke is easy, he's not saying discipleship is easy. He's saying that I've made you to bear the weight of the hardship that's going to come with it. Early on in his ministry, when they said, we want to follow you, he said, hey, come on, you can come, but just so you know, I don't have any place to stay. I don't, I don't have any place to lay my head. It's interesting, right? He talks about the broad way. That's the one that he calls easy, but then he talks about the narrow way of discipleship, and few people choose that way because it's hard. Grace has nothing to do with easy. It has everything to do with something being made possible. I can't be a disciple without the supernatural work of the Spirit of God inside of me. Grace makes it possible. Grace doesn't make it easy. Even when Jesus said, if you're going to make a vow of devotion to me, you better count the cost. If you can remember back to the moment in time where you were wrestling with the decision to make a vow of devotion to Christ, it wasn't easy for me. I'm assuming it wasn't easy for you either. It was full of grace because it was possible. But if you count the cost, you realize the weight of the moment. Why? Because as Jamie said last week, when he reveals his intentions, it divides our affections. All right, come on, let's talk about the next one. Double-minded, double-minded. This is the person who is too distracted by earthly pursuits. Rick Warren's famous three, pleasure, prestige, and possessions. The two in the middle there in this parable are oftentimes misunderstood, I think, as being the same. But one is talking about, right, because it talks about things being hard. It talks about persecution. It talks about hardship. Then it shifts gears. The plant still withers and the plant still dies, but this time it doesn't wither not because it doesn't have deep roots, the deep roots of the hard work that discipleship demands of us, but this time it's choked out by other things. It's choked out by distractions. It's choked out by the things of this world. Matthew 6, 24 says, is this no one can serve two masters you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot you cannot serve both god and money he's talking about the double-minded person the double-hearted person the double affection the dual affection person not that we can't enjoy things in this life i'm not talking about launching a new monastic movement we're not right i'm still hoping for some presents for my birthday right we're, we 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 believe in enjoying this life we believe in in good things but but what he's saying is what are the things that control you what are the things that have a 
authority over your life. Never let things have authority over you. Jesus is the only one. That's where idolatry comes in. Mark 10, again, dives back into the world of the rich young ruler in Matthew 16, 26, the famous verse that says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? There's a weightiness to the teachings of Christ and his teachings are authoritative because it is a kingdom, it is a kingdom of authority. Until I become fully submitted to Jesus' right to absolutely rule every aspect of my life, I will never accomplish all that God has destined for me. This is one of the reasons why we talk in our church about being patient with people who are in a journey of change. Being patient with people when you're in a conversation with them about change and transformation. Because all of us, again, move in and out of these different places. Our heart moves in and out of these different places. And all of us have times in our lives where our heart might harden a little bit. It gets a little bit defensive. And in those moments, it's important that you don't push people too fast and too far. Just if, if, if they love God and, and you know that they're a disciple of Christ, come on, the Holy Spirit's going to come in and start to break up that fallow ground. It doesn't mean that we don't challenge one another. It doesn't that we don't have difficult conversations with each other, but, but those conversations should move a little bit slower than sometimes they do. Our, our, the time we give for people to change should take a little bit longer than sometimes we allow because sometimes it takes time for a hard heart to become fertile soil again. Philippians 3. Oh, come on, these are good verses. Philippians 3, 10 through 13. Listen to what Paul says. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. That doesn't sound very easy to me. Are you with me? So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. That kind of attitude, that kind of heart is fertile ground. Listen to this one. This is a hard text here. Mark 11, 12 through 14. It's a kingdom of authority, people. Mark 11, 12 through 14. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for the fruit. Now, this is an important clarification that's given to us. It is not the season for the fig tree to bear fruit. It's the season that comes before the fruit. The leaves are there. The fig tree's doing everything that naturally that it's supposed to do has been designed by God. And Jesus said to the tree, that's okay, tree. I'll come back later. Is that what your Bible says? Does he gather people around and say, I want everybody to look at this tree. It's got leaves, just like it's supposed to. That fruit's going to come at some point. Now, this is angry Jesus. This is the Jesus that we don't do the flannel stories with in our kids in the nursery. <laughs> then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. 
And the disciples, they heard him say it. I'm not going to read anymore. You can read the rest. It's a longer story. But when he comes back later that day, when they walk by the tree, guess what's happened to the tree? Yeah. It doesn't have fruit. It's dead. It's withered up and died. And the disciples are like, wow, right? I need to go change my tunic. It's dead. Why is that story in the Bible? Because the Bible's trying to help us understand as the Holy Spirit has inspired the people who wrote it that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of authority. And sometimes his authority demands from us. Sometimes his authority demands things from us that in the natural we would say, that's not fair. His authority sometimes demands things from us that, that in the natural, that other people looking in would say, that's not right. God shouldn't expect that from you, but he's not looking for their approval. He doesn't play by the world's rules. He has his own rules. And when he demands something from us, there is something inside of us that is supposed to submit to his authority, even if it feels weighty, even if it feels hard, even if it feels difficult. It's only by the work of grace, but grace sometimes is weighty. I'm a fig tree. You're a fig tree. And Jesus says to you and he says to me, bear fruit. Even when the world would say it's not in season, you bring it. Love your enemy. I don't know about you, but that fruit is never in season in my life. Right? Give sacrificially. I don't know about you, but that fruit, it's never in season in my life. You, you tracking with me? Jesus looks at you, and he looks at me, and he says, come on, we can do it together. It's not going to be easy, but my grace makes it possible. Matthew 13, 11 through 15, 15 as the worship team comes back up. Matthew 13, Everybody's going, please, God, don't let him ask me to come up there and read anything. All right, 13. I want to talk about this a little bit as we go into a time of worship together. He says, you're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, when you hear what I say, you will not understand, and when you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand. And listen to what it says here. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. I'm touching on that because it's part of this text. And I don't want you, if you're doing some reading outside of here, which I hope that you're doing in Matthew 13, that your Bible might render that in such a way that it seems to imply that God's making it impossible for them to come back. 
And there are streams of theology that believe that. There are streams of theology that, that put God in a place of saying, well, he's just chosen who's in and who's out, and there's nothing we can do about that. We don't, we don't believe that. We, we believe that the proper rendering of this text is that they're unwilling to fully submit to the authority of Christ. And in so doing, they have chosen to remain in their own desperate circumstance. I'm going to put a plug in for a book tonight. It's called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. I want to hold it up so you can see it. A lot of times they have it in Barnes & Noble. You can definitely get it online, pick up a used copy. It's not a hard read. It's an easy read. It's one of the best descriptions, one of the best descriptions. Now, they go on a journey talking about grace that maybe is a little different from what you heard tonight, but hey, that's okay because there's room for lots of different ideas. Does that make sense? We're not saying that one is wrong and one is right. We believe with conviction what we teach. They believe with conviction what they teach but one of the reasons why I want you to read this book is because of how it describes sin. He has a really simple definition for sin, which is what I love. That sin ultimately has little to do with what we don't and shouldn't, or what we don't and should and do and shouldn't, right? Sins of omission and commission. He said ultimately sin is about one simple thing. It's about rejecting Christ's right to rule in your heart. Powerful, isn't it? All of us in our journey as followers of Christ are in different places in this place of submitting to him. All of us, like Paul, say, I've not achieved it. I've not gotten all the way there. But we're hoping that tonight is that your heart is going to go farther than it's gone before. There's going to be people that are on the, on the side here. They can come. You can stand with me as we get ready to join in a time of worship. And I also want to share with you that this area up here at the front of the church is open. We're going to be opening this up during this series. If you're here tonight and, and God has spoken to your heart in some way, maybe it doesn't even have anything to do with what we've been teaching and talking about tonight, but God's just moving on your heart and you, know, you just want to be in his presence by yourself, we're going to encourage you to come. If you want someone to pray with you, they're up here. If you just want to come and be by yourself, then you come up here and I'm going to go sit down and get ready to worship with you. But as I do, Sean Bay is going to share something that she shared with me at the beginning of the service. So last week, um, all the ladies went to Devoted, and this has kind of been in my heart since the uprising. Um, but at the uprising and at Origins when we go and at Devoted, there's a culture in that atmosphere that people come up to the altar. And I was thinking that falls in line with our mission to come up, right? So um, I, at Devoted, there are a thousand women there maybe. And to me, it looks like... Um, have you ever dropped a piece of food on the sidewalk and then you come back later and there's a bunch of ants all over it and they cannot get enough of that food? To me, that's the same way that God's grace is in this moment. It tastes good, right? So if you're sitting in your seat and you're thinking like, I see people around me and I see them getting their touch of God's grace and I just wish that I could get a piece of that for me, God is saying, come, come down and let it not be like a one-time thing. Let it not be this this day you come and you get your touch. God, let it be the grace. Let it be um, the culture of city life that at 5 o'clock we get our coffee, we have our small conversation, and we run in, stumbling over each other, can't wait to get to the altar to get our place because we know that it's going to be taken. So we're calling out boldness, and there's no reason to be afraid. Your kids are still going to be there when you come back. 
Your husband's not going to leave you because he comes to the front, right? So come up and get your touch every week. Don't worry who's coming. Know that God will be here. He's looking at you and just how we're the bride of Christ God. You have to think how your husband would love to be pleased. And God loves it. When you throw your arms up, when you scream at him and say, God, just me, just touch me right now. I've been waiting, waiting for you to come and touch me. So this is your call. If you've been thinking, maybe I wish the people in my aisle would move, this is it. Come up now and let it be the culture forever that at City Life we come and we get our touch and we can't wait to be in God's presence. Father, we're hungry and thirsty for you. Father, we're hungry and thirsty for your presence. Oh, oh, oh. Well, as you're coming, cry out now. Yeah. We're coming because we're hungry. We're coming because we're thirsty. We're not ashamed to get in the river tonight. Oh, somebody cry out in the river. 